All right, everyone. Well, uh, I was out last time. Uh, hope you enjoyed the video from uh, Greg and my commentary on it about asking questions. Who saw that video, by the way? Who saw the video, uh, Greg? Did you enjoy the video? Yeah, pretty solid, uh, pretty solid video. Um, really appreciate uh, the focus on asking good questions, especially with things like what do you mean? And then I, I gave you, try to give you some of my own, about half a dozen questions that I uh, tend to ask that that uh, that uh, that really work well conversationally. So what I want to do is continue on in the Doctrines of Grace uh, Sunday School series here. And uh, everyone uh, hopefully is prepared to read uh, from their copy of the Scripture, whether it's a physical copy or a digital copy, because, again, you can't just... Place your faith in a man. If you are reformed, I'll say it again, it needs to be because the Bible says so and not because any of your favorite preachers or pastors or theologians are reformed. And so we want to hear the word of God in our Sunday school class. Let me pray for us and we will go ahead and jump in. God, we're thankful to be here this morning. I'm thankful to be back here. We're thankful to be looking at these doctrines and how gracious they are. And though they are not um, the only doctrines of grace, certainly, um, they certainly are gracious. We are thankful for what you have done in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for calling sinners out of darkness and not leaving us dead in sin. We pray that you would help us meditate on these truths well this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so remember last time we came out of effectual calling and regeneration from 10.4 of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Uh, we talked about an effective call. We said that effectual calling makes two claims. One, that sinners are called, and that that, that call is sufficient, not just necessary, uh, to achieve or to result in salvation. That it is sufficient. It actually leads to it, as opposed to just one of many necessary elements. Uh, and this is an effective call. But there is also an external call of the gospel that is not always effective. It's not always effective, although believers receive both the external call and the internal effectual draw toward that call. So the distinction here is an outward call of the gospel that we're about to look at through some text, an outward call of the gospel to repent and believe to everyone, to the whole world. And God proclaims that through the gospel. Did I just do that? Ooh, that's rich. All right, let's stop that. Um, God proclaims that through the, the preached word, and, and, but there still remains this problem where someone's heart has to be open in order to, in order to receive that word. So let's look at the... We, 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 uh, if you weren't here last time, we can't rehearse all the texts, but... It, We've already looked at this. There is this effective call, a call that results in justification and glorification. John 6, 44, a draw in which everyone who is drawn gets raised up. Okay, there's no dropouts in this kind of a call. But here's a call that is a little bit different. It is objective and it goes to everyone. And a lot of people have heard these texts as a general proclamation. So just, let's, let's just auction these off real quick. So Matthew eleven twelve. Who wants to read Matthew um, eleven twenty eight? I'm sorry, I said eleven twelve because I can't read. Eleven twenty eight. Who wants to read Matthew? Asher's got Matthew eleven twenty eight. John three sixteen. Who wants to quote John three sixteen? You can't read it. Who wants to quote it for me? Oh, someone's afraid they're going to get a word wrong. Nobody cares. All right, you can read it. You can read it. It's okay. Acts 28, uh, 23 through 24. Acts 28, 23 through 34. You hear that, Chris? 
And then the longest one is Matthew 22, 1 through 14, which as it turns out, they're covering in our element, our lower elementary class today, which is awesome. Who wants to read that? The parable of the wedding banquet. Matthew 22. All right, LJ is going to read that one for us. All right, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Asher Dasher. The nice loud voice on a little velocity. Come to me. It's an outward call, Jesus and his ministry. Come to me. Hey, everybody, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come. Come. That's Jesus calling people to come. Okay? Um, John 3.16. You may read it. Yeah. Go ahead. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in Again, Jesus, part of in here, right here in his ministry, uh, right on right on the heels of this, really part of in one sense, this this um, a continuation of this conversation with Nicodemus. He is saying that listen, there is this truth that 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 is that has a universal proclamation that anyone who comes, anyone who happens to respond to this, will not perish, but have eternal life. That is just the reality of it. No one is barred. No one is barred from eternal life provided that they will come. That is the idea of this external, more general call and or announcement of the gospel and the good news of Jesus to everyone. Okay, Acts 28, 23 through 24. Okay, thank you. So this is Paul. This is Paul, and he's saying he is going before them, and he is proclaiming to them from the law, from the prophets, Jesus announcing the gospel, trying to explain it to them, trying to persuade them to call them to repentance. This general call. Okay? And then finally, Acts 22, I'm going to have uh, Laura read the parable uh, of the wedding feast here, and I'm going to just say a couple things about it. Okay, and that last verse really sums it up, doesn't it? I want to point out a couple things. First of all, this comes on the heels of Jesus talking to you. You always got to back up when you read these parables. It's like, who, who's he talking to? Talking to the disciples? He's talking to the crowds? He's talking to the Pharisees? Who's he talking to? And in this case, if you back up, 
he is talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees. He is talking to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and it says, they're talking about the stone that the builders rejected. Um, you have the parable of the tenants right there. And it says, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, and then he tells this particular parable. Okay, He's talking about, hey, you have been called. You have, you have been, the, 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 the parable, he was, they discerned correctly, was about them, the parable of tenants, and so is this one. This one, is, this one is, a, is also about them, and he's saying that there is a kingdom of heaven that Christ is bringing in, and it can be compared to something. It can be compared to something, uh, compared to someone who made this great feast and said, come, come, you're supposed to be here. You are the one supposed to be here, but the people who are supposed to be there, namely, the, 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 particularly in this case, the religious leaders, these, these Jews who rejected Jesus, they didn't come. And so there's kind of a second wave. There is this, a calling to everyone that goes out. Let me draw your attention to verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Both bad and good. So good and bad folks are both gathered, or they're called, and so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But then something happens. The king came in, looked at the guests, and he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless, and then they throw him out. Now, our sensibilities, when we read this passage, are like, oh, like that's kind of, that seems kind of mean. But, but you got to understand that the picture here is not someone who got thrown out because they couldn't afford a wedding garment. That's kind of how people read it. It's like, oh, well, it's just a, it was a person who didn't have, you know, enough money to buy a wedding garment. They tried to show up, and, and, and you know, the master is like, oh, you're not good enough. Go to hell because of the, 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 the big bind him in the outer darkness. You get to go to hell because of that. That's not it, though. That's not it. This is the picture of a wedding crasher. That's the picture. Everyone invited would have had a wedding garment to be there. This person isn't supposed to be there. I actually got married on the beach, and uh, everyone, a lot of people were wearing flip-flops and sandals and everything. And uh, let's suppose that in the resort next door was a formal wedding at night. Everyone was wearing tuxedos. It was inside. And uh, a couple people from my wedding decided to go over to their reception. Okay? And uh, someone said, uh, hey, you're not wearing a, a tuxedo. Okay? They're, they're, they're trying to crash. They're trying to wedding crash this thing, right? Well, you're not wearing a tuxedo. Notice that person would get thrown out, not because they couldn't afford it. It's because by what they were wearing, they, they showed that they, they're not supposed to be there. They didn't belong there. And so they would get tossed. This is the exact, this is, the, this is what's talking about here. He says that at the end of the day, and, and this is a, sum, a commentary on the whole parable thus far, there are many called. Many, many, many are called. You see how many people are called here in this parable and how many people are two together? But few are chosen. But few are chosen. And we're going to tease that out more when we get to the next part of the confession. But this is the idea that there are, the, 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 you kind of see both calls operative here in one sense. You see a call that goes out to everyone, but then you see a call that is going to be made, that is going to be on the basis of something else, this chosen piece that we haven't, that we haven't got to. But this is the reality of the external call of the gospel. It goes out to everyone in the proclamation of the word, in the preaching of Jesus. And it is in fact true that anyone who repents and believes the gospel, anyone who repents and believes the gospel will have eternal life. 
Okay, And so in that sense, it is a universal offer to anyone who will repent and believe. And God calls us to repent, we're going to see. He calls us to him, and he says, I'll, I will come, come my, 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 uh, my burden is light. Okay, that, so that's really the kind of the two kinds of calling that we see in Scripture. An effectual call that seems to always lead to its end, that is to say, salvation, resurrection, justification, all the rest of it. And then the reality of an external call through the preaching of the gospel that oftentimes goes unheeded by people. They simply do not repent and believe. Well, how is it then that someone hears the external call but then responds, right? So what's the difference between the person sitting, the two people sitting right next to each other, they both hear the outward call of God. Why does one person, when they hear it, say they all they, they grew up in the exact same home, right? They, they have the exact same information, their culture, their nature, their nurture. They're twins, actually. They grew up. Why does one person, the person sitting on the left, respond to the call of the gospel, or the person on the right doesn't? They're both receiving the outward call. What accounts for the fact that one can receive, uh, one receives it and one does not? And furthermore, if both are dead in sin, and remember we talked about this, they are haters of light, they hate the light, they love darkness, they are dead in sin, and they cannot please God, Romans 8, because they don't have the Spirit, how could they possibly, having heard this, say, oh yeah, I want to move towards God? How, do, how is that possible? If people cannot please God, if they are dead in sin, how do you all of a sudden develop a desire for godliness? Where does that come from? The answer Scripture gives is regeneration. And so, what I want to do, again, I know it's a, a, a longer uh, group of texts there, but it's worth, it's worth reading here. What is regeneration? It is a unilateral, meaning just God is the only actor here, act of God upon the hearts of those who are dead in sin and blinded to spiritual truth, resulting in the impartation of spiritual life and the capacity to, write, uh, to desire and rightly discern the things of God. God does a quickening act in our hearts that transforms our hearts into something uh, uh, that can respond to the gospel message. And as I said, that the regeneration is really the other side of calling. Um, it's really kind of two sides of the same, really two sides of the same coin. And therefore, it will inevitably lead. Uh, to someone repenting and believing the gospel. In other words, there's no such thing as someone who has a regenerated heart that's quickened towards godliness that doesn't end up repenting and believing. It is sufficient, uh, a sufficient condition as well. Okay, so we're going to start in the Old Testament of Ezekiel's promise here, and then we are going to go through some of the New Testament texts that make it uh, uh, fairly explicit that this is what happens. So let me get my uh, readers ready. Let's start, starting in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Who wants to read that one? Josh. John 1, 12 through 13. John 1, 12 through 13. John 3, 3 through 8. John 3, 3 through 8. John 3, 3 through... Oh, there we got three hands. See, if you say it a third time, people start feeling bad for you, so they want to help out. John 3, 3 through 8... Now I got you on the hook. Acts 5, Acts 5, 31 
Acts 16.14, Philippians 1.29. Who wants to read Philippians? Christian, Philippians 1.29. All right, only a couple more here. 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2.25. Chris, two more. James 1.18. James 1.18. LJ. And then finally, 1 Peter 1.3. Who can be there? Be there. No. Someone hadn't done a first one. 1 Peter 1.3. Hannah, come on. You can read first. You don't have your... You got your phone. You don't have a phone. Asher, I will let you take the second one, despite Hunter volunteering for it first. Anyway, the, the kingdom of God and heaven belongs to such as these. I'm sorry there, Hunter. Here we go. Okay, Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27, Ezekiel's promise of the Spirit that we should be anticipating here in the New Testament um, with a nice loud voice and a little velocity. Okay, I'm going to do something to your heart. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my rules. I'm going to take out this stony heart of flesh that is God-hating and opposes God, and I'm going to put in its place something that desires God. That is how you are going to be able to take any favorable step towards Jesus Christ. And that is, of course, what we're going to see teased out here in the New Testament. John 1, 12 and 13. So they were born not of the will of man, not of flesh, but they were born of the will of God. And of course, some of the language here, particularly in John, especially John 3, is like no one, no one uh, directly controlled, no one had any, well really, no one had any say in being born. This is the idea of they were born of something. There was something, they were reborn. There was something that happened and they weren't, they were a passive recipient of it because that's just the nature of the born uh, language, but they were born of the will of of God, not of the will of man, not of the flesh, explicitly says that, but of the will of God. John 3, 3 through 8. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again. Okay, so you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. That's what it says, right? You have to be born again in order to enter. The kingdom of God can be proclaimed to you. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of heaven. In order to actually enter it, though, you must be born again. It's not the other way around where it's, 
well, I enter the kingdom of God and then I'm born again. No, it says you got to be born again uh, in order to enter. And, and Nicodemus, of course, is saying, well, how could someone be born again? And he, go, and he says, of course, we're not talking about going into your mother's womb again, but nevertheless, uh, there is a spiritual rebirth that happens. We are caused to be born again a language that we're going to hear down in first peter and again it's not being born is not something that you do to yourself no one causes themselves to be born finally that last part in verse 8 where the, the where the wind what is how does how does verse 8 exactly read again the spirit blows yeah so it's this idea there is something mysterious about it there is something mysterious about the work of the Spirit here, just like the wind. And I, I think I've talked about this a couple of times. Like if you were a first century person and didn't have, uh, uh, you know, science to explain wind, I mean, wind is weird. It's like air that just randomly moves. And they didn't have a fan. Like is someone fanning me? No, the air is just moving. And then the, so the, the imagery is like there's something happens. You can't see it. You won't be able to even explain it, but there will be something that changes. That's the picture here from John 3, 8. Acts 5, 31. So the idea is that Christ is granting repentance. He is giving repentance. He is the one who is enabling repentance to Israel, to those of who actually ended up repenting. He is the one who is bringing about these things and not just saying, go do them by yourself. I've already proclaimed the message. Acts 16, 14. A woman named Lydia, in the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabric, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Okay, another great example. Paul was speaking. Paul was declaring the gospel as his was his custom. And what happened? Lydia has her heart opened in order to receive the things that he's saying, without which she would have no ability to do so. That's the reason it clarifies that that's what happened. God opened this woman's heart so that what Paul was saying in the external call could actually take root and be effective and lead to her wanting to follow Jesus. See how that works there? Open her heart to receive what was being uh, delivered there. Philippians 1.29. Okay, Philippians 1.29, we see that belief itself, and belief and faith, by the way, in the Greek are the same word, but faith, belief itself is granted to people. It has been uh, 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 granted to you not only to suffer for him, but to believe in him. That's the idea. Both of those things are granted. Those are things that God has brought about. God is guaranteeing that the suffer, just as suffering is going to happen as a part of the plan, that the believing is going to happen as a part of the plan too. And God is the one who has sovereignly said, That's that this is how it's going to happen. This is how it's going to, to play out. They, they, I am going to give you suffering. I am going to give you belief, faith. Okay, it has been granted to you suffering and to belief. Okay, not it's been proclaimed to you now, just do it by yourself. But we're dead in sin, that's not possible. Second Timothy 2 25. 
Okay, this is, yeah, sorry I started you in the middle of a sentence here, but this is uh, Paul talking to Timothy, talking about how to interact with uh, opponents and his interlocutors with whom he disagrees. And he says, um, interact with them with gentleness, and God may grant them repentance. God may grant them repentance. Okay, that is the idea. They are hearing the gospel. Timothy is speaking with them. He is showing perfect courtesy towards all people, as Paul also tells them elsewhere. Perhaps if you are gentle and you plead, God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. The repentance is granted. All right, James 1 8. One, I'm sorry, 118. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, by his own by his own will, he brought us forth. He brought us forth. It's just that coming out language, right? It is the, I am coming out of darkness, and it happens. How? It happens by God drawing out and changing. And how does it, can you actually, can you read that one more time? I don't have that one in front of me. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, yes, perfect. So, we are going to be a first fruits of his creatures, because because there's kind of, we have the down payment version now, and the fullness of what we will be. Uh, remains, and God is the one who is pictured as doing this, as creating the first fruit by an act of His will in our hearts. And then finally, 1 Peter 1 3, we're going to see Peter's version of John's born again. Who's got 1 Peter 1 3? It's Asher, right? Excellent. He has caused us to be born again. It is something that God has caused in us. It is not something that I that happened to me because I did something. I did this, and now I get to be born again. No, no, no. God has caused you to be born again, and that is how you can move forward. Okay? Okay, so the idea of regeneration is that People who are dead in so so to go back to our question, two people, twins, grew up in the same hall, all the rest of it, sit next to each other, both hear the external call of the gospel. Why is it that only one responds, and essentially we therefore we realize that only one receives this effectual call? Well, they're both dead in sin. How can either one of them respond? One receives this inward draw towards the external call and regeneration, a heart that can actually respond to it. They are, to use the, the example of Lydia, is just the cleanest right-off-the-page example, someone who has had their heart opened to attend to the things that are being proclaimed to them, and someone else's doesn't. That's just the reality of it. That's the only way that people who are dead in sin can respond to the gospel, an, uh, an objection that we're going to look at notwithstanding. One, one theologian says this. It says, exactly what happens in regeneration is mysterious to us. We know that somehow we who are spiritually dead have been made alive to God in a very real sense have been born again. But we don't understand how this happens or what exactly God does to give us this new spiritual life. And he actually quotes John 3, 8, where the Spirit just blows. Like, well, what happened? What changed? Like, I'm not sure. C.S. Lewis gives a great account. I don't think I have it. Do I have the, his... Um... Oh, here it is, Yeah. I know very well when, but hardly how, the final step was taken, that is, in his conversion. I was driven to Whipsned one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. 
Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. That's just what it looks like. In fact, I talked with a young man a couple of years ago who was just sitting around in his college, college dorm room, and he picked up the Bible, started reading it. This, is a, this guy was a militant atheist philosophy major. The last person I would ever think is have to. Yeah, and he just started reading his Bible, and he just believed. He's like, I wasn't looking for God. Like, I wasn't even searching for it. Just, I read the Bible, and I was like, oh, this is true. And that, that, that's the idea. That's the idea here, that the Spirit imparts. There is a quickening of the heart that opens our mind and opens uh, our, hearts, uh, our minds and hearts to receive the word proclaimed, without which it can be proclaimed to us over and over and over and over and over, and we'll just have more information. We'll have more information. We'll be able to clearly articulate what the gospel is and who Jesus is, and we can tell you all about the resurrection because we've heard it a million times, but without that quickening of the heart, if someone's still dead in sin, they cannot, they cannot respond. Because dead people don't do anything. That's the whole problem. That's the whole problem. In order to respond, you have to have a quickened, a quickened heart. So understood as such. Oh, I don't have that part. Okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, go through some objections to this view. This is my favorite part. Going through the objections. Objection. Actually, before I do that, does anyone have any questions about what I've said? While everyone reads my slide that I, sh I shouldn't have tapped yet. Does anyone have any questions about regeneration and or effectual calling? One is a draw that always leads to salvation. Then there is a regeneration that allows someone to respond to that, that draw. Again, they're really two sides of the same coin. In fact, you might even think of like uh, directive regeneration or something like that. They're you can't really pry the two apart. People try to. Conceptually, fair enough, but they're really two sides of the same coin. Any questions about that? Yeah. Well, it well it would just it's a great question. So for the camera, the question is: if there's an effectual calling, what's the ineffectual calling? Uh, it's just the it would um, it would just be the preaching. It would be that outward call that isn't always effective. And and I guess that's a that's a good way to like it makes it sound like preaching the gospel is some kind of weak anemic thing. That's not what's supposed to be communicated. But the idea is this inward call always results in repentance and belief, whereas the outward call does not. Yeah. Yeah, so it's really, it, it kind of sounds like it should be contrasted with the ineffective call. Um, but because believers, it is, it is effective, though, for believers. So that's why they kind of just said there's this inner call that happens to be effective and an outward call that for those who also receive this inner call is effective. But otherwise, they're just dead in sin. Okay, and otherwise, again, you cannot, you simply cannot explain why one person responds instead of another. And we're going to get to that a little bit more. Okay. Time for objections to this. Time for objections. First objection. Because of prevenient grace, an effectual calling is not necessary for people to repent and believe the gospel. They can do so of their own choice. Who knows what prevenient grace is? Anyone know what prevenient grace is? It's not common grace. Good guess, though. Very good guess. Prevenient grace, generically speaking, is just a grace that comes before. However, that's not actually what the, how the term is used in the theological discussions. Prevenient grace is most strongly associated 
uh, well, it's te- I would say it's teased out. It, it, it's it's abso- associated with more of the Arminian scheme of things. But prevenient grace is a grace that we, we said people are dead in sin. How can they respond? The, the, our, our Arminian brothers and sisters um, believe that we are dead in sin and cannot respond apart from grace. That's, some people are shocked to know that. Okay, Jacob Arminius, John Wesley, very, very strong doctrines of depravity. Very strong doctrines of depravity. Natural man apart from grace. Here's the catch, though. Prevenient grace has been extended to everybody. Everybody has prevenient grace. And so everyone has been restored slightly. So they are not all dead. In sin, they are bent towards sin, but they're not because they have grace accompanying. They are not bent so badly towards sin that they can't respond without some effectual special call. Which is, you know, the objection is problematic for all sorts of other reasons. Like, why does not everyone get it? For example, prevenient grace. John Wesley typically turned to four texts to justify prevenient grace. Should we should we look at those? Do y'all want to see the texts? that buttress the prevenient grace, right? I think it's worth looking at, right? I mean, if you're saying, hey, there's a a way to get out of being totally unable in our depravity but uh, so that we can respond, but doesn't, it's not an effectual call. That would see, that's a pretty major move right there. That's a pretty major move. And everyone has received this. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I don't know that you necessarily go back to dead, uh, but the idea is that you are, everyone is dead in sin apart from grace. However, everyone has been given grace. And so everyone, as I'm going to get to, is the princess bride version of dead, mostly dead, or partially dead, but not all dead. Yeah, so everyone is only partially dead. Which is it, which? It is applied to everyone after Adam. After Adam, sins, prevenient grace. Everyone has experienced prevenient grace. Okay. So dead is not really dead. Dead is dead not. Is dead. I mean, yes, something like that. Okay, and we're gonna we're we're about to look at this. So let me have some judicious readers here. Let's do John one nine. Who wants to read John one nine right here? John twelve thirty two. John 12, 32, Asher, Romans 2, 4, Romans 2, 4, Hunter, and then Titus 2, 11, Titus 2, 11. All right, let's go ahead and uh, look at a couple of these, okay? I'm going to, I want to, I'm going to try to give them the most compelling interpretation possible, 
as it's sometimes deeply, it's very challenging to give a compelling voice to some of these things. But I'm going to, I'm going to try to give you the version there. All right, John 1, 9. Okay, through the cross of Jesus Christ and what Jesus did in his incarnation, everyone was enlightened. And that even includes people who, you know, b- before he came. It said that he came to enlighten. There was an enlightening that actually happened when Jesus came as a result of his person and work. And all men were enlightened. That doesn't sound like dead. It sounds like that Christ uh, did something to take people who were dead in sin and do something so that they weren't dead in sin, even if not everyone was saved. John 1, 9. That's Wesley's biggest argument. Okay, Matthew, I'm sorry, John 12, 32. Okay, now this one, the, the language is a little bit different here. And, but, uh, the, uh, but, but what he's saying is that when I, when I die... Jesus says, I'm going to draw everyone. Everyone is going to get a draw. And you say, well, if we understand regeneration and the calling, the draw kind of be two sides of the same coin, maybe everyone is going to get some degree of regeneration. Everyone is going to get some sense of this Christ draw. That, so they are not dead, uh, as it were. Okay? Romans 2.4. Okay, so there is a kindness that has been showed, and what does the kindness do? The kindness is a kindness that, uh, that allows people to be led towards repentance. There is a kindness that has been showed in the person of Christ to everyone, so that no longer is everyone dead in sin and a light hater, but despite being bent towards sin, they are able to come to re- be led towards repentance because of the kindness of uh, of Jesus. Okay, and then Titus 2.11. Okay, so the grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all people, not meaning necessarily, uh, they wouldn't even say that everyone is saved, but uh, that there is something that is affected in everybody as a result of what God uh, offers, and that there is this grace that has been spread around uh, for example, that restores people to some degree of ability to respond to the call. All right, so let me again just point out that Arminians and, and, and uh, uh, Calvinists agree, against provisionists, by the way, that people, apart from grace, are dead in sin and have no ability to respond to the gospel. Okay? Doesn't matter whether you're Reformed, whether you're a Baptist, whether you're Southern Baptist, whether you're a Church of Christ, you're I mean, they, they they agree, or Arminians do, uh, that that people apart from grace are dead in sin. Prevenient grace says, though, that this particular grace has met everyone and has partially restored everyone's heart, so that while they are still bent towards sin, they have enough change of heart that they can repent and believe the gospel when they hear the external call without someone else, uh, without another effectual call being necessary. So provenient grace, on the dominant view, there is a minority view that says provenient grace only follows the preaching of the gospel, but it's the heavenly minority view, is provenient grace is necessary, not sufficient, okay? It doesn't always lead to everyone repenting and believing. It is enabling, it is a grace that enables people to believe the gospel, but doesn't necessarily lead to it. It is transformative, so it does slightly restore people from being dead in sin, and it is universal. 
The upshot of prevenient grace, I know that's a long paragraph, but I think it's helpful, is that no one, uh, that there is no one who actually experiences total inability or depravity. All such descriptions of inability describe man without God's grace, but everyone has received God's grace despite still being sinful. Everyone has been restored to a point where they have at least the ability to choose to repent and believe the gospel without a further work of God. Okay? That is the objection here. Okay? This is the main line. And, and the lo- you have to have something like this if you have total inability or depravity to explain. How does someone go from being a, a God-hater and a hater of light and who can't please God to desiring to repent and believe? This is a different version of the story that one could tell. What are the problems with prevenient grace? Well, there are a lot of them. And I don't have time to go into all of them. We've got three minutes left, so I'm going to give you a couple. The first, uh, prevenient grace presents a New Testament category that doesn't exist. Someone who is neither a light hater, unable to please God, who is dead in sin, nor someone who is alive to God, united to Christ with sins forgiven. It presents a princess bride version of depravity, mostly dead or kind of dead. It presents this middle category, dead in sin, unable to please God, unable to come, united to Christ, sins forgiven. This says, no, 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 people are actually somewhere in the middle of those two. Uh, There's a category for someone who's in the middle. But when we listen to the scripture, we don't see that. Matthew 12, 32, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you are against me. Um, John 3, 19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Again, you have people who love darkness and you have people who love light. There isn't like, there isn't that person who's like, well, I kind of like a dimly lit room, you know, it's kind of like, uh, they're like the dimly lit room people. They don't like light, they don't like darkness, kind of like some hybrid Luke 6, 44, 45, we read this last time we were together. The evil man brings evil out of evil stored up in his heart. The good man brings good out of the good stored up in his heart. Seems to be two different kinds. Okay, Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want to end by turning with Romans 8, and we'll continue on with the objections to this next time. But Romans chapter 8, real quick. You turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Paul writes that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we can say, is that actually true now? Like, actually, yeah, we can say that's true. Next verse. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Is that actually true? Like, that's, there's actually people who have been set free? From sin and death, we believe that? Okay, great. Everyone believes that. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So has the law been fulfilled as a, as a result of what Christ has done? Are there people who walk according to the Spirit? Yes. Okay, that's true, right? All right, well, it sounds like we're having, we're, we're here. Paul's talking about a lot of things that are actually true, like in the real world, right? For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Okay, now it sounds like there's two different kinds of people, two different ways to live. Now, is that, no, we've gone, gone through a lot of things that are actually true, that, that describe Paul's audience and reality. Does this describe reality? It certainly would stand to reason. 
Did we switch to a hypothetical? I mean, I don't think so. Well, let's continue on. Let's continue on. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Again, two distinct categories. Two distinct categories. Again, we, there's no non-arbitrary point to get off the, we're actually talking about real flesh and blood people, not hypothetical. Then finally, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When we get to the end here, as we progress through, can we really say that what Paul is talking about right here, in, in light of all these realities in the first part, as he works down, that are true in the world, like actual flesh and blood people, have no condemnation because of this, somehow in the passage we get to a hypothetical person. Because that's what this is. That's what prevenient grace asks us to believe. That there is no one, for the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, who cannot submit to God as all. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. On the, on the view of prevenient grace, that's describing man apart from grace. But everyone has grace. So it's talking about a hypothetical person. But if we're going down through Romans 8, we have to ask, is that really plausible? All these other things are actually true. Christ has actually done this. The law has actually been fulfilled. There really is no condemnation, but there actually isn't really any of the last part that he talks about. It just uh, is not an exegetical move that is plausible. Well, thank you so much. I went two minutes over because I wanted to go to Romans 8 there and show you that. Next time we'll pick up uh, going through some other of the challenges with provenient grace. I will go through and I will work through each of those four texts um, to show, I, I think, what they very, they very clearly do not have the meaning that uh, is ascribed to them here, uh, but I didn't have time uh, for that today. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, being with your people. Thank you for enlightening hearts and minds. We pray that you would do so even in our service today. Perhaps unbelievers hear the gospel for the first time, that you would call people out of darkness and that you would make the preaching of your word effective by your spirit. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.